It's only uh, in Christ and by union with him, by the, the power of his indwelling spirit, that we can sing those last words that to keep his statutes faithfully shall be our, our willing choice. As we open God's word this morning, uh, we turn to Job chapters 4 and 5. Uh, two weeks ago, you recall we heard Job's uh, sad lament in Job chapter 3. So did his friends who had been there with him for seven days and seven nights, and uh, they apparently did not approve. So now the oldest of them, Eliphaz, speaks up. We read beginning at Job 4 verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, or the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me. And trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with air, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die, even without wisdom. Call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you, and to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish take root. But suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring up from the ground. 
Yet man is born to trouble, and the sparks fly upwards. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He watches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He never, or he shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he shall redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. And you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine. And shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth, for you shall have a covenant with stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age, as the sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. Irrigation, I was um, asked a a few weeks ago how I intend to uh, preach through the book of Job. Do we uh, plan to just sort of do the beginning and the end and maybe a few selections from the middle, the way that it's often done? Or do we we plan to actually go chapter by chapter through it? And this question was related to Job's counselors. Um, How do we preach eight sermons on the poor counsel of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar when God in the end tells us that it misses the mark? Often maybe one summary sermon is, is preached on these eight speeches, But I think it's worth noting that that's not how God gives it to us. Rather, he gives us 42 chapters in this book because there is no easy answer to suffering. And he gives us their bad counsel in nine chapters or 15, depending on how you view Elihu, so that it might be pounded into our heads what not to say to suffering saints. Eric Ortland, in a recent book on Job, says one of the reasons why the poet lets the debate go on for so long is to provoke such disgust at the friends that we resolve to never speak to sufferers in this way. Says the author is trying to inoculate us against this kind of counsel. It's important that he does Because this kind of theology and pastoral counsel is actually very common 
and easy to agree with. In fact, so common that we have probably said similar things ourselves. So it's important that we listen and that we listen to all of what Job's friends have to say. And as we do so, it's also important that we do so as sympathetically as we can, seeing that at least in this first part, Eliphaz seems to be well-meaning. You notice in 4 verse 2 that he asks before he speaks. He he goes on in in verse 3 to offer a word of encouragement, acknowledging all of the ways that Job has counseled many. Ways that he has strengthened feeble knees, the ways that he's helped others in need. Remember, of course, in chapter 2 that Eliphaz and his friends make an appointment together to come and comfort Job and mourn with him. And so whatever negative conclusions we may come to about his counsel by the end of this speech or by the end of the book, whatever negative conclusions we may even come to about Eliphaz's counsel by the end of the book or even by the end of this speech, we need to remember that at the beginning, he's a man who means well. And this is important for us to grasp because if we simply villainize him, then it's easy for us not to see ourselves in him. William Henry Green says, against this we must carefully guard or we shall weaken the author's point. This point is this, that it's good men who give this bad counsel. That it's good men who give this bad counsel to such an extent that they do. We need to be careful not to think that we're immune to this but to realize that we give this kind of bad counsel too. As Wortland says, our frustration at the friends that will grow as we read through this book needs simultaneously to be directed at ourselves. Our frustration at the friends should simultaneously be directed at ourselves. So having said that, then let's look at Eliphaz's counsel in these two chapters. First, his diagnosis. After his somewhat gentle approach in verses 2 to 5 of of chapter 4, where he asks permission to speak, where he recalls Job's many good works, even expresses a level of sympathy in verse 5, acknowledging that the same kind of hardship others whom he has helped have felt has now come upon him. After all that, Eliphaz then gets to his diagnosis. He says, now that these things have come upon you, Job, you are weary and you are troubled. It says in verse 6, is not your reverence your confidence? And I'm not certain why the, um, the New King James does this, but that, that word for reverence is the same word for fear that has already been used several times in the opening chapters of how Job fears God. We're supposed to see a bit of a link there. And then Eliphaz says, is not your integrity, end of verse 6, your hope? Is not the integrity of your ways your hope? And that should remind us too, that that should uh, signal a sort of echo in our minds of that same word in Job 2 verse 9, where Job's wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Eliphaz is implying that Job does not fear God and that Job does not hold fast his integrity. This is his way of gently chastising him for chapter 3. And this is somewhat clear in other translations where verse 5, the, the SV, for instance, renders, now that it has come upon you, you are impatient. 
Suffering touches you and you are dismayed. Um, Do you hear in those words Eliphaz's disapproval of Job's lament from chapter 3? He's saying you need to be patient, Job. Which is ironic since James chapter 5 actually holds up Job as a model of patience. But Eliphaz and his friends who he represents do not share in James' assessment. Now his fundamental assessment is that Job does not fear God nor shun evil and that Job does not hold fast his integrity. But lacks patience as seen in his terrible words in chapter 3 for which he needs to repent. And then places his, uh, and then after he does that, he needs to place his confidence, Eliphaz instructs him, in his fear of God and in the integrity of his ways. Uh, Meredith Klein says, Eliphaz believes that there is a direct ratio between sin and suffering, that you reap precisely what you sow. And so Job obviously needs to repent. That's Eliphaz's basic diagnosis. Job suffers from a lack of godly fear, which we already know is not true since we're privileged to have read the the prologue in Job 1.1 and Job 1.8 and Job 2.3 where the judge of all the universe who sees all, the, the one who interprets the thoughts of the heart, says that Job does fear God. And we already know that Job does have integrity because we have read Job 2, verses 9 and 10. Where his wife says, why do you still hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job says, shall we accept good from his hand and not evil? In other words, I will not curse him. But I will hold on to my integrity. But Eliphaz didn't hear that. Eliphaz wasn't there for that. But he comes after the fact with his quick diagnosis, you don't fear God. And then after that diagnosis, he places before Job his evidence for such a diagnosis, beginning in verse 7, where I notice he he appeals to uh, personal experience and observation. As, As I've seen it, Job, this is how things work. Nobody ever perished being innocent. The upright have never been cut off, but those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You reap exactly what you sow. And so actually, Job, your problem goes deeper than just your impatience at this trial, but you must have actually sinned to bring it about. For based on my observation, those who plow iniquity perish by the blast of God and by the breath of his anger. In verse 10 and verse 11, he even appeals to the animal, uh, the animal kingdom, to the example of lions. and says, this is so true that we even see it with animals. God is so fair and so just that nobody gets away with evil. He has a sort of retribution theology that is so neat and tidy that there's no such thing as undeserved suffering, but a perfect ratio between sin and suffering. And so he appeals to his own observation, limited by the fact that he um, is not eternal, that he is not all-knowing, that he is not all places at all times. He appeals to his limited experience and says, this is the way I've seen it, Job, and so this is the way it is. 
a dangerous thing to do. Not every experience is the same. We, we don't possess all the facts even of what we do observe. And we are not infallible interpreters of providence. But Eliphaz forgets this, as we sometimes do also, and he presumes to, to teach Job based on his finite, limited observation. He says, this is what happened to me, uh, this is what happened to somebody I know, and so this must be what's going on with you. That's his first piece of evidence. And then he appeals to another authority, now this time not just personal experience, but spiritual experience where he tells of a strange vision that he had in verses 12 and following, where he says a word was secretly brought to him, his ear received a whisper in the middle of the night. This seems to be a dream that he's describing. And he says, as he had it, a dread came upon him, his, his bones were shaking, and a spirit passed before him that said, can a mortal be more righteous than God, or can a man be pure before his maker? I notice again to what Eliphaz appeals. He's saying, God told me. He appeals to personal divine revelation with which you cannot argue. And again, how often is this sort of thing not done? I think of a story where someone is told by a charismatic friend that the reason for their struggles with infertility were because they were possessed by a demon. They said, God told me. Therefore, your struggles are fundamentally spiritual and you need to get right with God rather than seeking medical help. God told me. They said, I've heard a word from God for you. This is your problem. How unhelpful. This sort of thing still happens today and not just in charismatic circles, but also in ours. We're just a little bit more subtle about it. We say... I've been praying to God, and I feel led by God to say this to you. But how can they argue with what we're about to say if we've been led to say it through time with God? We need to make our authority when we're counseling suffering saints the word of God and neither our personal or spiritual experience. And this, Eliphaz and we often fail. But I want you also to notice, uh, beyond that, just how anticlimactic his revelatory dream is. As we read all of the build-up from verses 12 through 16, we, we would expect something more than just the basic principle that we're sinners. That's basically what verse 17 says, that we're sinners. But Job knows that. But Eliphaz presents it as if he doesn't and as if this is somehow the answer to his problem. It goes on in verses 18 to 21. At this point, it's, it's not quite clear if this is still the vision that he's recounting or if this is just his interpretation and application of it. And he says, Job, not even angels are right before God. Not even angels are pure before their maker. How much less than those who dwell in houses of clay that are crushed like a moth and perish forever. And at this point, um, he seems to have in mind Job's situation and the house that was crushed in Job 119, where his children die. 
fact, if you have a different translation, like the, the, the ESV before you, we see something similar in 421, where the New King James says, does not their own excellence go their way? The ESV translates that, is not their own tent cord plucked up within them? They die even without wisdom. The same sort of thing seems to be going on there in verse 19 and in verse 21. Um, Eliphaz is, is giving us an example of incredibly insensitive things to say to someone whose children have just died because the roof of their house fell down on top of them. He is in essence saying, Job, God told me that their house was crushed because of your sin. But do we not sometimes do this sort of thing also? Rather than weeping with those who weep, we rush to tell them why they're suffering. It's because you dressed too provocatively. It's because you didn't spank your child enough. It's because you need to be more submissive to your husband. It's because you weren't wise enough in choosing a husband. It's because you're not fulfilling his needs enough. These are are the sorts of ways that we blame sufferers. Or another one where, where someone said, it's because you let your kids watch Harry Potter that you now have this illness. Eliphaz is invoking divine authority to tell Job that his children's death is his fault. And at least he doesn't try to, uh, to, to pinpoint some specific sin, but, but his assumption is that there is one which he returns to in chapter 5 as, as he goes back now again to his uh, personal experience. His, his evidence in, in this whole section is personal experience and observation, a supernatural spiritual experience, and now again in chapter 5, personal experience, where he says in verse 3, I have seen. Let me tell you what I've seen, Job. I've seen the foolish taking root. People who seemed to be doing well, who seemed to have the blessing of God upon them, but then a curse came upon their dwelling place or or their their house. And here it's not clear if if he's actually saying that he invokes this curse or um, if he's saying after the fact, after witnessing their suffering, he judged them to be cursed. But he goes on in verse 4 to say that their sons are far from safety and they are crushed in the gate with no deliverer. Again, what an insensitive thing to say to someone whose kids have just died. You are cursed by God. And when you appeared to be uh, taking root, enjoying that abundance of chapter 1, that was not God's blessing, but that was something else. And now you were getting your just desserts. Your dwelling place has been crushed or has been cursed and your sons are far from safety. He's suggesting a sin led to what happens. And he's also suggesting that Job is sinning right now. And he says, wrath or vexation kills a foolish man. Envy or jealousy slays a simple one. He's saying, Job, don't get all hot and bothered about what you perceive to be injustice. For you know that sort of anger leads to folly. And do you know what happens to fools? They perish. The hungry will snatch your harvest, a snare will snatch your wealth, verse 5. And he reminds him again that this kind of affliction does, does not just come from the dust. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. 
but is a result of sin. And so his uh, personal experience confirms his so-called spiritual experience that sin leads to suffering. This is the evidence that Eliphaz gives for his diagnosis in chapter 4, verse 6, that Job does not fear God. Which then leads to his prescription in the rest of chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. Where he says, if I were you, Job, I would seek God. If I were you, Job, I would seek God. What a, a simple unnecessary, so obvious it's not even worth saying prescription. Oh, you think I didn't think of that, Eliphaz? Seek God, is that all? And besides that, what a, what a proud and presumptuous thing to say. If I was in your shoes, Job, if my entire livelihood had just been lost, if I had a festering boils and wounds all over my body, And if all ten of my children had just died, here's what I'd do, Job. I would seek God. Easier said than done, Eliphaz. And to be careful when uh, giving advice to sufferers not to insert ourselves into their situation and arrogantly tell them how we'd respond. That is precisely what Eliphaz does. I would commit my cause to God. 4 verse 6, fear him. Because he does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Zillifaz goes on to point in, in chapter 5, verses 9 to 16, as he enters into this theological treatise in those seven verses, that while true, it seems a bit mistimed. It doesn't seem like that's maybe what Job needed at that moment. It also proceeds on the assumption that Job does not fear God, and so he needs to hear these things in verses 9 to 16. And so he gives this this treatise in those seven or eight verses, then leading into verse 17, where he again restates his prescription, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, but be happy when God corrects you. Realize, Job, that you are blessed. Be happy at this discipline. You see how this sounds a little bit like the counselor I quoted a few weeks ago who said that discouragement in the face of suffering is rebellion against God's providence which needs to be confronted. That's what Eliphaz is doing. Don't despise God's discipline, but happily receive it. Here he misunderstands two things. One, that this isn't discipline but that there's more than one category for thinking about suffering, not just discipline for sin. And two, that you don't have to be happy when you suffer. He represents this sort of happy, clappy Christianity that thinks, for instance, the the Psalms of Lament are sub-Christian, that offer suffering saints nothing to sing. And many churches take him as their patron saint in the songs they select and the way they treat those who were downcast. 
So he tells Job, humbly submit to God's discipline. The, the wise and reasonable course, the truly pious course, as one writer summarizes Eliphaz's argument, is not to indulge in passionate outcries against God's divine orderings, which only produce harm, but to meekly accept and submit to the sorrows he sends, who bruises but binds up and wounds but makes whole. Such submission, Job, will surely lead to peace and salvation. That's Eliphaz's prescription. If you shut your mouth, humbly accept God's chastening and repent of whatever sin must have caused it, it'll be well for you. That's Eliphaz's prescription. Let's look at his his flaw. Obviously, we've already noted a, a few that Eliphaz speaks from his limited observation and misunderstood spiritual experience, that he doesn't speak tactfully with regard to Job's children, that he rejects lament as ungodly. But I want to focus here on, on three things that are especially absent from Eliphaz's counsel. Um, first, that he leaves no room for righteous suffering. In Eliphaz's worldview, as we already pointed out, there is a direct ratio between sin and suffering. And so what that means is that there is no room for righteous suffering. And you see that in the question that he asks in 4 verse 7, where he says, Whoever perished being innocent? For Eliphaz, the implied answer is no one. But for God... The answer is very different. For the rest of Scripture, the answer is very different. Whoever perished being innocent? Christopher Ash says the Bible places against that question a large eternal cross where the innocent one perished in the place of the guilty so that we might not perish. And so Eliphaz, with his tidy theological code, misses the heart of the universe a worldview in which there is no room for righteous suffering has no room for the gospel. And so misses the heart of the universe. Second, Eliphaz has no room for a mediator. Did you notice that again? The question he asks in 5 verse 1, he says, call out now and is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? In other words, where are you going to find someone in heaven who will represent your case? And again, the implied answer is nowhere. And this begins a sort of of theme throughout the rest of the book, a theme of a mediator in, in whom Job's faith will increasingly grow. It's by the Spirit of God he speaks in 9, verse 33, and in 16, verse 21, and again in 19, verse 25, of a mediator and redeemer who will plead his case with God as a man pleads for his friends. But Eliphaz has no room for this. Now, he denies that such a one could exist for sinful man. I'm missing not only the heart of the universe and the possibility of a righteous sufferer, but missing the fact that that righteous sufferer will be the mediator for whom Job longs. As we've already seen, to whom Job points. 
which leads then to a third omission in Eliphaz's treatment. Um, He has no room for righteous suffering. He uh, has no room for a heavenly mediator. And then third, he has no realization of Job's unique purpose in God's unfolding plan of redemption. C.J. Williams says in his book, The Shadow of Christ in the Book of Job, the flaw of Job's friends was not that they misinterpreted Job's suffering as God's doing, but their flaw was in their failure to see any special prophetic purpose in the extraordinary image of a righteous man suffering God's judgment. They failed to reach for any any higher reference point from which to view this astonishing drama, and so they fell back on the only human explanation they could think of, that Job must be a terrible sinner. Their fatal flaw was that they couldn't see the exceptional circumstance of Job as a unique prophetic revelation of God's unfolding plan of salvation, which one blameless man will suffer the extraordinary judgment of God. We can forgive them for not understanding this. They will be forgiven as Job intercedes for them in chapter 42. But we mustn't miss the point that their fundamental misunderstanding was with regard to the gospel, was with regard to what, uh, what God was doing in Job's suffering. And so much like the one to whom Job points, they regard him as a sinner. And this too, Job is a prophetic shadow of his Savior, a righteous, sinless man, yet numbered with transgressors. Meaning Eliphaz and his friends unknowingly contribute to this gospel drama. In order for Job's suffering to foreshadow Christ, he also had to be numbered with transgressors, though blameless and upright. This is the role of Job's friends. They number him with transgressors and therefore play a role in Job's typology. And so as we think about the contribution of Eliphaz and his friends, it is first of all in helping to prefigure the suffering one to whom Job points, whose suffering will not only be physical and emotional, but will consist in being labeled a sinner. And so positively, Eliphaz and his friends contribute to the unfolding drama of redemption by charging this righteous man with sin. And then negatively, they they make a pastoral contribution in providing us with a myriad of lessons for how not to speak to suffering saints who may not be suffering because of sin but in God's wise plan may be suffering to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions and silence the enemy. They teach us not to be quick to speak, 4 verse 2, but to keep from speaking if all we have is personal observation and misguided words from God. They teach us not to impose our narrow, rigid systems on sufferers or heap guilt upon them, telling them that they must have sinned. And they teach us, we who have seen the shadow to which Job points, not to give counsel that is devoid of the cross. Christopher Ash again comments, any counsel that is devoid of the cross will be discouraging and hurtful. 
Since the message of Eliphaz is a message of piety and religion rather than the gospel of grace, Job will be driven to despair if he believes it. Any message other than the gospel of the cross and the gospel of the mediator between God and men will lead suffering men and women to despair. Only the gospel of the cross brings true comfort. So, beloved God would have us to learn this morning that when we comfort suffering saints, we don't do so with piety and religion. We don't do so by telling them to fear God and be quiet. We don't tell them, or we don't do so by, by denying them the psalms of lament and telling them they just have to be happy when they suffer. We don't comfort them by blaming them for their sin or by inserting ourselves into their situation and telling them what we'd do or what we did when we were in their shoes. But we point them to the gospel of the cross, the only thing that brings true comfort. And repent of all the ways that we are like Eliphaz. Trusting that even as the mediator who Eliphaz denies will intercede for Job, he will also intercede for Eliphaz and for we who are like him. So you see, Christ is not only the answer for Job, but Christ is also the answer for Eliphaz and his friends and also for us. He is the one who gives comfort to suffering saints. He is the one who gives uh, comfort and, and pardon for bad comforters like us. And he is the one who we therefore highly exalt. As that servant of Isaiah 42, whom he read earlier in the service, who does not cry aloud in the streets, who does not lift his voice, does not quench a smoldering wick, a bruised reed, he does not break. But he's gracious towards us in our suffering, even as we repent of the bad ways in which we have been very much like Eliphaz. He will be gracious to provide pardon is that mediator between God and men. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we have often given Eliphaz-like counsel on failing to sympathize, speaking when we should not speak, speaking from our own limited experience, trying to speak on your behalf, as you see in that last verse of chapter 5, speaking from, from tradition, this is, this is what um, others have told us is true, and so it must be. And so, Lord, that same gospel of the cross that Job needed and that suffering saints today need, we uh, cast ourselves on also in need of your grace. I'm asking that you would forgive us. I'm asking that you would help us to help your suffering saints that through us you would show yourself to them as the God of all comfort who provides that comfort in your Son, the righteous sufferer, and the only mediator between God and men, our sympathetic high priest. Pray in Jesus' name.